If you're not there already, we're going to be starting in Acts 23. Verse 23. And he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers, and go to Caesarea, and horsemen threescore and ten, and spearmen two hundred at the third hour of the night, and provide them beasts that they may set Paul on and bring him safe to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter after this manner. Claudius Lysus, unto the most excellent governor Felix, sendeth greeting. This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. And when I would have known the cause wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth into their council, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. And when it was told me how that the Jews laid wait for the man, I sent straight away to thee and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. On the morrow they left the horsemen to go with him and returned to the castle who, when they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle to the governor, presented Paul also before him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was. And when he understood that he was of Cilicia, I will hear thee, said he, when thine accusers are also come. And he commanded to him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. After five days... Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very were and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by the province, providence. <clears throat> we accept it always, and in all places, most notable Felix, with all thankfulness. Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldst hear us of thy clemency a few words. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow, and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes, who also hath gone about to profane the temple whom we took, and would have judged according to our law. But the chief captain, Lysias, came upon us, and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things, whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, Forasmuch as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. 
because thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in any city. Neither can they prove the things whereof they they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. And herein I do exercise myself to have always conscious, always a conscious void of offense toward God and toward men. Now after many years I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with the multitude nor with tumult, who ought to have been here before thee and object if they had, had aught against me. Or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council, except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, When Lysias the chief captain shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your manner. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty, and that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come unto him. And after certain days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might loose him. Wherefore he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to shew the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. Maybe seated. Good morning. I see that some of you, in trying to combat the cool room from last week, have shifted over to this side. Um, I don't know. To me, it doesn't feel as cold. Is it as cold this week? It's okay. I didn't think so. But uh, hey, a new seat will do you well. Um, it's good to change uh, spots every now and then, get a different perspective on things. So um, I am excited about the word this morning. I think. Uh, There are many applicable uh, truths here that I'm hoping uh, in our time that we have we'll be able to put forward and have us consider from God's word here as Paul is standing trial um, under Felix here. And so as we uh, jump in here, I'm going to ask the Lord uh, to just bless the time that we have before uh, his word. So would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, uh, we acknowledge you to be uh, the God of heaven the one who rules and reigns over all things. 
And we recognize your mighty power and we say thank you this morning for your eternal word that stands firm in the heavens. We thank you, Father, for sending Jesus and for granting to us righteousness at the cross. We thank you for sanctifying us in these days as we await our final resting place with you in heaven. And we recognize that the prize is Christ himself. And getting to see him as he is, no longer seeing dimly, but joining together with all the saints in that great cloud of witnesses that we see described in the text, singing praises, worshiping the name above all names, Jesus Christ. We look forward with hope and expectation to that day quickly approaching. And I pray that we would be found faithful and ready, and through your Spirit, We ask just now, Lord, that you would grant us the grace to be witnesses to Jesus right now, here in the interim, as we wait. And we ask, Lord, this morning that you would teach us your statutes and infuse in us a steadfastness to walk in your unchanging truths and to do so for your name's sake. Father, I ask that you would open your word to us just now, instruct us. We need to be taught by you. I pray that each one of us has ears to hear what you have to say. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The question this morning I'd like you to consider as we begin looking at the Word. Is it your aim to be well-pleasing to the Lord? Is it your aim to be well-pleasing to the Lord? And if so, how does your living... Manifest a life well-pleasing to the Lord. If not, if that's not your aim here this morning, I'd like you to consider what is your aim. What are you aiming at in this life? Robert Chapman, who is a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon and Hudson Taylor and George Mueller, He lived a life well-pleasing to the Lord. Mr. Chapman is a relatively obscure figure, but his life is a punctuation mark on a life pleasing to the Lord. Once he became a new creation in Christ, his life changed, drastically changed. Author Robert Peterson writing the biography of Robert Chapman, he writes these words. He says, a new life opened before Chapman. He began studying the Bible with a new understanding. As a result of his decision to follow Christ, Chapman also faced rejection from casual acquaintances who were offended and convicted by his enthusiasm for the Savior. Chapman, in his own words, he says, There are many who preach Christ, but not so many who live Christ. My great aim, he said, will be to live Christ. And as author Robert Peterson says, this became his goal, to love Christ and to love and care for the poor and to carry God's message of salvation He says that obedience to the scriptures was paramount to him. 
the literature that once so delighted him lost much of its appeal. His main reading interest was now, what do you think? The Bible was his main reading interest. It was God's message to him. The book that gave meaning to his life. He no longer needed to spend his evening studying law. That's, that was his early on pursuit, law. Bible study now occupied his time. Earthly ambitions gave way to heavenly. His greatest interest was in telling people about the Lord. That's coming from the writer speaking about this man, Robert Chapman. You know, Mr. Chapman's life was well-pleasing to the Lord. And upon becoming a new creation in Christ, Chapman exhibited a full-time devotion to pleasing the Lord. His aim was pleasing his new master and walking as his new master walked. Well, as we open up the word and as we have seen here in the book of Acts, Paul's aim was to be well-pleasing to the Lord as well. In fact, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9, 10, and 11, Paul says, therefore, we make it our aim. Whether present or absent, he's talking about whether we're going to be here or whether we're going to be there, whether we're present, absent from the Lord, present in the body. That's kind of the context. It's the passage in verse 7 that says, for we walk by faith. Same context. We make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, to the Lord. For we must, here's the why, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, Paul says. I think it's important for us to understand that you cannot please the Lord apart from the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. Amen? You, it, it's, you can't. You can do some good things. But we're talking about pleasing the Lord. The Spirit in you serves as the guarantee, the Bible says, of your inheritance to come with Jesus in heaven. Romans chapter 8, verse 8 says, in fact, that those who are in the flesh cannot, it's not possible, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And we know from Galatians chapter 5, there's this battle, this tug of war going on between the flesh and the spirit. They're in opposition to one another. You know, when Mr. Chapman was born again and changed into a new creation, he received the spirit of Christ. The spirit is the deposit who provides access for one to be well-pleasing to the Lord. You cannot live a life well-pleasing to the Lord apart from the Spirit of Christ abiding in you. Now, Paul's life at this point, right where we began in chapter 23, verse 23 this morning, up to this point, his life has been zealously lived out. Early on, he aimed at pleasing God, but he only knew of the righteousness which came from the law. Philippians chapter 3 speaks of that as Paul's testifying. But once his eyes were literally opened on that road to Damascus, he abandoned that righteousness which was from the law, and he embraced the perfect righteousness 
of Jesus Christ, which was afforded to him through the cross upon which Jesus died. You see, Paul's life from Acts 9 forward is a pursuit of pleasing the Lord. A life that's aimed at witnessing to Jesus. A life that lovingly called others to know this Jesus that he knew. With the objective being that they too could live a life well-pleasing to the Lord. His new creation status, listen, his new creation status shaped his life and changed the world. It shaped his life and it changed the world. And so as you consider your own life here today, I'd like you to ask a few questions this morning as we begin looking at this. Has my life to this point been shaped by my new creation status as a believer in Jesus Christ? Has my life to this point been shaped by my new creation status as a believer in Jesus? Second question, has my life to this point changed anyone else around me, let alone what Paul's life did, impact the world? (laughs) Has my life changed anyone else around me? Because of this new creation status. I'd like you to watch in the text today. There's a cast of characters that we encounter in the text. And I'd like you to look for signs of new creation living. I'd like you to note where the flesh is evident. I'd like you to ask yourself, who's aiming at pleasing the Lord? And even as a prisoner, Paul, we see, stands out as a new creation. His aim is pleasing the Lord regardless of what his circumstances might look like. And therein may be one of the big differences between Paul and ourselves here today. Because as soon as we hit a circumstance that is hard, that is difficult, perhaps our tendency is to stop aiming to please the Lord. Here's Paul in a prime example for us. He's in prison. He's a prisoner, and he will be throughout the rest of Romans here, or Acts, as he's going to Rome. And he's modeling for us, I believe, even in difficult circumstances, what it is to be a witness, what it is to live a life pleasing to the Lord in circumstances that are quite unfavorable. We left Paul in the barracks. Once again, in the fortress of Antonia, a few weeks ago, remember that Paul has just arrived at a low point in his life, wondering when or if he's ever going to get out of here. Remember, he has these, these hopes of maybe going to Rome and Spain, and he's just testified before the Sanhedrin, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were found arguing over Paul's statement of the resurrection of the dead, and for fear of his life, Lysias, the commander, comes, takes Paul away from the council, puts him back into the barracks. And the Lord, that next night we see in the text, speaks to Paul. He's commending him for his work up to this point. And he's encouraging him about what's to come. The Lord says to Paul, you must also testify in Rome. He doesn't give any of the details on how this is going to happen. He doesn't give any of the details on when it's going to happen. But he gives Paul a certainty that it's going to happen. And we see that in that time, the Lord's comforting presence served to encourage Paul in this difficult period as a prisoner. 
And then we see shortly on the heels of that, a plot comes together on Paul's life. And we're introduced to the nephew of Paul, who hears of the plot and then informs Paul, who in turn tells the centurion, who then carries the news to the commander. And the commander has this little one-on-one private chat with Paul's nephew, finds out the information and tells his nephew, don't tell anyone that you've told me this information. And it's right there where we left off. Sort of a cliffhanger of old. What's going to happen? What's the commander going to do with this information? How is he going to take this information just given to him and use it? Is he going to do something with it? What's going to happen to Paul? That's where the text begins today. Really, in many ways, this text is broken down into four different parts. And the first part is is this section that, that concludes chapter 23. And I've just called this or labeled this emergency exit. It's an emergency exit. And we see here that Paul's life is preserved from death. I'm going to give you four key words. Here's the first word, key word. The first one is preserve. Paul's life right here in this passage is preserved. It's preserved from the plan, first of all. What plan? Well, you remember that plot that was on Paul's life. There were 40 men who took an oath that they were going to kill Paul. And Lysias hears of the plan from Paul's nephew and he takes immediate action by means of an emergency exit. Look at verses 23 and 24. Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. That's 470 if my math is correct. 470 folks are going to accompany Paul, bring some mounts, set Paul on, and you're going to escort him safely to Caesarea into the hands of Governor Felix. That was the mission. An emergency exit called for. Late in the evening, the third hour of the night, 9 p.m. The plan of these 40 men is thwarted. They gather the company of soldiers. They head off on a night march toward Caesarea. They go about two-thirds of the way to Antipatris. Were the soldiers then, having escorted Paul through the most dangerous stretch of the journey, they return back to Jerusalem. The spearmen and the horsemen continue on with Paul on the second day of the journey. Paul's life is preserved from the plan of a deadly ambush. And he's taken safely to Governor Felix. But I believe Paul's life is also preserved through a picture, through a picture that, is, that comes in the form of a personal correspondence. Here in the text, we have a letter that's written. One of the things that's accompanied goes along with the group going to Caesarea is this letter from Lysias himself. And in verses 25 through 30, we see this letter. He writes this letter. And and really, it outlines in brief why this man Paul is coming to Caesarea. The letter served as a picture of what had been happening in Jerusalem. He wants Felix to have some context of Paul and his accusers. And so in this letter we read that, first of all, he was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. We read that he says, I, notice how many times he uses I in that letter. I, look, look what I did. Lysias has this thing about using I in his letter. I rescue him. Now, it's not entirely 100% accurate if you really read it carefully. 
He says, I rescued him along with the troops, having learned that he was a Roman. Well, that's not entirely true. He didn't find out until he was a Roman until after the fact. He didn't rescue him because he was a Roman. Notice what's absent in the letter. Notice he doesn't say anything about wrongly tying up Paul and being ready to flog him. Do you see that's not there? There are some things in here that he chooses not to put in here. Overall, he gives a good brief account, though, would you agree, of what's gone on. He gives Felix a picture. He's preserving Paul's life by giving Felix a picture of what's gone on. He said, I discovered that he was accused due to the questions regarding their own law. I brought him before the Sanhedrin to see what was going on, and I found nothing. This is really, I think, important part of the picture he gives to Felix. I found nothing in Paul deserving death or chains. That's an important picture for Felix to have. I heard that some Jews were plotting to kill him. Therefore, I delivered him to you and demanded his accusers to state their case against Paul before you in Caesarea. Farewell. That's the letter. Paul's life is preserved. You know, there's, there's a third way we see here in this text, though, that his life is preserved. It's preserved once again in a place called prison. You see, Lysias' actions, they preserve Paul's life from the plan that was afoot to kill him. His actions preserve Paul by way of a picture given to Felix of the situation at hand. Paul is delivered to Felix in verse 33, if you look at the text. They came to Caesarea, had delivered the letter to the governor. They also presented Paul to him. He's handed over. And the letter's read, and Felix then inquires about Paul's home province. Where are you from? It was important to have some understanding of where this person was from in trying the case. Finds out he's from Cilicia. And we hear that in verse 35, Felix says, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And then Felix preserves Paul by means of the prison. He puts him in Herod's praetorium. Paul is kept over the next five days in prison as a prisoner once again. And yet he's still being preserved by the Lord. This is important for us to understand. See, sometimes the Lord preserves his people in ways that are uncommon. While it's not uncommon for a prisoner to spend time in prison, when we speak of the Lord preserving someone from death, the picture of being held in prison is not oftentimes what comes to mind. You know, I was thinking about a few illustrations in the scripture. And while this particular person was outright disobedient, Jonah the prophet, Jonah found himself preserved by the Lord in a very uncommon place. Where was that? In the belly of a fish. I knew you would know about this. In the belly of a fish. What about Noah? Noah, you see, was assigned a, a 100-year, give or take, building project of this big boat we know as an ark. And there came a day when Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives came into the ark and God shut them in. They were preserved in that ark. And all the while, what was going on outside the ark was a worldwide flood. I was also thinking about Jesus having been crucified on the cross 
died. He's preserved by the Lord in the midst of the grave, the tomb. Through his mighty power, he's, he raises Jesus from the dead and preserves his life, showing to all that death has no hold on his son Jesus. Now, friends, if God can preserve his son from the grip of death, don't you think he has the power to preserve you? To preserve is to, to keep or to save or to store away or to protect from imminent danger. God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. He can preserve your life. He can keep you from the storms. He is able. How many of you realize God is able this morning? He's able. Now, even as we say that, we also know that he is able to allow the storms to run their course in your life. Well, perhaps we don't like that part of the story. However hard it is to reconcile in your mind, the point here, I believe, is still true. He can preserve your life. And you may be thinking, how can he preserve my life if I'm not here? We've forgotten then that we are citizens of heaven. When all we consider is preservation of life for purposes here on earth. You see, the things of this world are passing away, the Bible says. So the most important aspect of the Lord's preserving you would be for eternity. Amen? Eternity. The Lord desires that none should perish. That is, that none should leave this earth without a certain hope of life yet to come. To perish is more than a physical death. The Lord's desire is that none should find themselves separated eternally from him on the day that he returns. To perish is to be lost forever with no hope and with no Savior. The Lord preserves life, and he does so, listen, he does so through his son, Jesus. That's how he preserves life. I was reminded of that hymn where the hymn writer is speaking of all these things he doesn't know. All these things he can't figure out. But he comes to the conclusion in the chorus, here's what I do know. I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep, he is able to preserve that which I've committed to him against that day. Oh, there are a lot of things, friends, we may not know. I do pray and hope that we know whom we've believed. And that we have come to understand that he is able to keep and to persuade, to preserve the very thing we've committed to him. Well, as Acts 24 opens up, the accusers from Jerusalem have made their way into Caesarea, accompanied by a slick lawyer named Tertullus. And in, in light of Tertullus, I labeled this next section flowery rhetoric. Seems to fit. This section of scripture really speaks of Paul's accusers speaking before Felix, Tertullus in particular. Key word here is accuse. Accuse. We had preserve and we had accuse. It seems to be the key word here. The time has come for the trial to begin. 
The Jewish leaders were very quick, it seems, to prepare their case and make the trip within a five-day window. Think about all that they needed to do in preparing their case, getting to Caesarea, being ready for this. Five days, they, they, they got this done pretty quickly. It also helps us understand their urgency to get rid of Paul. The hired gun for their case is Tortullus. He's a lawyer, skilled in a Roman court of law. Not uncommon for the Jews to do this, this particular situation. I labeled this section flowery rhetoric because it just seemed to fit Tertullus perfectly. Look at how he begins his charges against Paul. We pick it up in verse 2. When he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight... We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. Ah. Can you just hear that? Can you hear those words? Can you, can you see him saying those words? I can also envision... The chief priests and company standing back there uh, biting their tongue because they don't think very highly of Felix. Peace and prosperity, come on. If you read the history, that's one of the last things that he brought about in his reign and term was peace and prosperity. Sounds really good. That's the way he begins. In fact, of all that Luke provides for us here of what he speaks... It seems that he had to overinflate his beginning to even have a case. You know, so he, he had to have some words to speak because he didn't have a whole lot to prove. He didn't have a whole lot to stand on. And so he had to make his introduction, and especially flowery, had to make it sound good. And that's his beginning. Well, he finally gets to the charges in 5 and 6. And I think it's important as we look at 5 and 6, we can see some things here in particular his, uh, of his charge. First of all, you know what an Elias is? An Elias is sort of like a, a code name or, or um, otherwise known as some other name. And, and I think here he gives three Eliases for Paul. He gives three different names for him. And they're found here in the text. First of all, he says, we found this man to be a plague. That's the first name for him. Paul the plague. He's a pestilence. He's a disease. The second name he gives to him is a creator of dissension. This man, Paul, is stirring up trouble everywhere, all over the world. The third name he gives to him is that of a ringleader. He's wanting Felix to understand this man, Paul, is the primary instigator of all the problems being stirred up right now. A plague, a creator of dissension, a ringleader. But he also speaks of an affiliation as he's talking about Paul. And in particular, he says in the text, he's a ringleader of the sect. Notice he refers to that as a sect. A ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. 
The charges brought against Paul here are delineating his sect from that of all other Jewish people. The Nazarenes are affiliated with a particular Nazarene. Do you remember that Nazarene? He happened to be from Nazareth. Jesus. Yes, Jesus of Nazareth. And so Tertullus is making the charge against Paul based upon his affiliation with Jesus. A charge based upon an affiliation with Jesus. Now let's step out of the Roman courtroom for just a moment. We don't have to look too far around to see that certain charges are still being submitted against the Christians. Any charges being trumped up today against those desiring to follow Jesus. Your affiliation, listen, your affiliation with Jesus is enough to spark a storm of debates and charges. Have you noticed how easy it is to file a lawsuit today? Affiliate yourself with Jesus, the Nazarene, and attempt to live a life well-pleasing to the Lord, and it's guilty by association. (laughs) If being affiliated with Christ is deemed a charge against me, then yes, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. And I was thinking about Jesus while he was here on earth. He affiliated himself with whom? God the Father. Remember that? He was always coming back to his Father, the will of his Father, what his Father was doing. In fact, he says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and my Father are one. That didn't go over too well either. Stones were primed and ready for throwing at that point. Paul stood accused of some of the same charges that Christians face today. They are still being called today. We're still being called by names. Some of them aren't all that pleasant of names. They have names for us. Sure do. They still place us in a box of religion. We cry that religion has... No place in the political arena and only needs to be expressed within the confines of four walls on a building on a Sunday morning. Keep it there. You know, I was reading in Revelation chapter 12. And I came across this passage about the great dragon. There was this war in heaven, remember? John's seeing this, right? The great dragon was cast out, serpent of old, called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. He was cast where? To the earth. Then I heard a loud voice saying from heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And then it goes on and says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. Woe. That's what it says. Beware. The inhabitants of the earth. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. See, the accuser of our brethren had been accusing before God in heaven night and day. He's cast down to earth, he and his angels. He's been cast down, having been defeated by God and his angels. The devil has great wrath and he recognizes that he has a short time before he's done away with permanently. But in the meantime, 
He's going to do what he can to profane the name of God. And I would say that he's done a masterful job up to this point. His agendas, his plans, his schemes have been working by and large. The accuser of the brethren is still alive today, friends. Still alive. That's the bad news. The good news is this. We have an advocate who stands on our behalf in the heavenlies. His name is Jesus. You can read about it in 1 John chapter 2. That's our advocate. The same Jesus who died on the cross and rose triumphantly from the dead. The Jesus we serve today has already overcome death. And through him we too are overcomers. His spirit in us is greater than he who is in the world. Instead of being frightened over the devil's sway in the world in the short term, let's be confident, let's be courageous, knowing that the Holy Spirit is more powerful than any wrath-filled devil. The accuser will go on accusing, but we have an advocate in heaven, more powerful, and he will one day set things straight. The devil is not our judge, friends. God is. And he has assigned all judgment to come to his son, Jesus. The standard for this man appointed by God is righteousness. He's judging according to righteousness. And that righteousness can be obtained one way. It's through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are preserved through Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone. And once his, no one... This is so... This is, this is good news. Once you're his, no one, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible says in that same passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 8, there is nothing, there's no condemnation toward those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is accused by Tertullus. And the Jews at the end join in the attack when he's done speaking there in verse 9. Having heard sufficiently from the accusers, Felix, with a nod of the head, gives Paul the opportunity to speak. In verses 10 through 21, we see persuasive reasoning put on here by Paul. And the key word here is defense. This is Paul's defense. Paul has been giving quite a few defenses of late, it seems. This is Paul's defense before Felix. So that's the third key word is defense. We have preserve, we have accuse, and we have defense. After a much briefer introduction than Tertullus, acknowledging Felix as governor, Paul begins his defense of the charges. He answers to each one of them very skillfully. And notice that Paul is both able... ...and willing to speak on his own defense. Paul doesn't have someone speaking on his behalf. Paul is speaking on his own behalf... ...as he's moved by the Lord... ...carried along by the Holy Spirit. His defense really is summarized in three parts. The first of which is his intent. We see his intent. And it's essentially up front. He's wanting Felix to understand... ...here's my intent... ...for coming to Jerusalem... You need to know, Felix, why I came to Jerusalem. And really, in his defense, he lays out two intentions of coming. The first of which is in verse 11. 
He says, you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to what? What did he go up to Jerusalem to do? Worship. He went to Jerusalem to worship. That's his first intent. The second intent is found in verse 17. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. So he has two intentions. One is to worship. One is to bring alms and offerings. Remember, he was bringing the offerings as gifts to the poor in the church at Jerusalem. He had collected an offering from the Gentile churches. Remember that? That's his intention for being in Jerusalem. He wants Felix to understand his intent. And he establishes intent before Felix, making sure that he knows why he came to Jerusalem. His motive is to worship and to bring forth these offerings and alms. But he also, in his defense, sets forth his innocence. We see this in 12 and 13. They neither found me in the temple, disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Down in verse 18, in the midst of which, when he's in the temple, some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Paul's bringing up a really good point here. Hey, the people who seized me originally were Jews from Asia. Where are they, Felix? I don't see them. This would have been a very strong piece of evidence. They were very ones who seized him and, and caused the tumult, the mob. They were not even here in Caesarea pressing the charges. Paul brings that forward. They should have been here. Uh, verse 20, or else let those who are here, pointing to the chief priests and the Jews who are with them, or else let those who are here, listen to what he says, let them say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. And he even brings that, that one touchy point back up in verse 21 about the resurrection of the dead. Notice that nothing explosive happens when he says it this time. I wonder if it had anything to do with being before Felix, the governor. I think it did. But you see, Paul here is, is simply, in his defense, displaying his innocence. There's a third piece to it that I think is also very important in his defense, and that is his identity. He reveals his identity here. You see, the charges against Paul labeled him as a plague, as a creator of dissension, as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Remember that? That was the name given to him by Tertullus. In Paul's defense, he clearly identifies, defines his identity, if you will, unashamedly verbalizing his allegiances and his affiliations. For instance, he says, I worship the God of my fathers. He's connecting his identity to his spiritual fathers before him. I belong to the way which they call a sect. He's differentiating their terminology of a sect with the way. And that, that name, the way, is characteristic of Jesus himself. And we see in John 14, 6, Jesus declares himself to be the way, the truth, the life. And there he says, no one, no man comes to the Father except through me. And so in some ways, I believe Paul is identifying himself as one who follows Jesus, this one through whom alone access is made available to God the Father. He says, I believe all things that are written in the law and the prophets. And so what is he doing? He's identifying, he's anchoring himself with the Holy Scriptures. He says, I have hope in God. 
I have hope in God that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. See, his identity here is established in hope and a sure understanding of the judgment to come, a judgment that awaits for both the just, the righteous, and the unjust, the unrighteous. In fact, here it's important to bring forward perhaps a couple scriptures. Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, he says this, he says, Do not marvel at this. He's speaking to the Jews of the day. For the hour is coming in which all of you who are in their graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Jesus said, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In Romans chapter 2, we see this same delineation in regard to God's judgment. Paul says, but in accordance with the hardness and, and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life. To those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, what awaits them is indignation and wrath. And Paul, as he's describing his identity here, he says, you know, it's because of this judgment to come. I strive always to have a clear conscience without offense before God and man. He links his identity to his behavior. You see, his heart's desire is to please God in light of the righteous judgment to come. Knowing that time of judgment awaits, he aims at having a clear conscience without offense before God and men. Paul's persuasive reasoning includes his intent, the why, why he arrived in Jerusalem. Declares his innocence, denying the charges that have been submitted against him. And clarifying his identity. This is who I am. And the text seems to indicate that Felix adjourns the proceedings after Paul's defense on the resurrection of the dead. Felix is deemed in the text to have a more accurate knowledge of the way. Verse 22. Perhaps that's because Drusilla, his wife, is a Jew. The trial for now comes to an end and Felix pronounces the verdict or lack thereof in verse 22. Here's what he says. When Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. That's the verdict. This last section of scripture, I just labeled this devastating procrastination. Devastating procrastination. What we're going to see here is that Felix, the the key word is rejection. We're going to see Felix's rejection, not only of Paul, but of Christ. See, Felix issues what in law terms would be a continuance on the case. Choosing to defer judgment until the case had an opportunity. He had an opportunity to speak with Lysias. He was going to speak with him further. Luke never tells us about this conversation when or if it ever did take place. But the verdict was put on hold until a future time. Now we need to understand something. Felix is the one who is the man in charge here. He's leading these proceedings. Felix had a letter from Lysias. He had heard the testimonies from the Jewish folks given by Tertullus. He had heard from Paul and yet couldn't make a decision. 
or perhaps didn't want to make a decision. And I think that becomes very important to consider as we look at this because to cite that Paul was guilty would go against Lysias' letter stating that he was not deserving of chains or death. But to let Paul go would not be especially favorable for Felix either. If Paul walks free, the Jewish people are going to cause more problems for him. And that could spell bad news for his office. You see, one of his concerns was to keep order and peace among the Jewish people. And releasing Paul would cause greater turmoil, not less. So he opts to decide by not making a decision. Have you ever decided something by not making a decision? Parents, I think we're very good at this one. He procrastinates making a decision. He fears on one end and he fears on the other end. What is the truth? You see, when you know the good that you ought to do and you don't do it, the Bible says in James 4.17 that that is sin. Absolutely. It's what it is. Oh, it's, it's, it's evident here in the text, in verse 23. There's comfort provided for Paul, even in the midst of this no decision. Part of the ruling involved Paul returning to prison. But Felix is clear that Paul is allowed to have his friends minister to him at this time, meeting his needs. He was allowed to have liberty during this time in prison. So there's a certain level of comfort that's provided, even in the midst of the continuance. But 24 and 25, in particular, speak to a convenience. He says, after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. That's important for us to understand. They sent for Paul, and they wanted to hear from Paul concerning the faith in Christ. The gospel. They wanted to hear Paul on the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. There's that word convenient. It seems that Drusilla may have influenced Felix to speak with Paul. History tells us that this is Drusilla's second marriage. This is Felix's third marriage. Drusilla is some 19, 20 years of age at this point. History tells us that Felix pulled some strings to get Drusilla as his wife. History seems to paint an unfavorable picture of both Felix and Drusilla. Both filled with lust. Both highly overcome with walking in the flesh. Now imagine Paul 
reasoning with them about righteousness. I believe he's speaking to them about what it is to be right with God. I believe that he's speaking clearly and specifically about the grace by which one is saved. Not some nebulous grace offered even recently, as of a few weeks ago, by our own president at a eulogy of a pastor who was slain in South Carolina. Not not some nebulous grace. No, this, this grace that extended was extended by God through his son, Jesus, through whom one has access to God the Father. Listen, John 1.17 says that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through whom? Jesus Christ. How do you speak of grace, amazing grace, without speaking of Jesus Christ, church? And I believe Paul here, as he's speaking, when he's speaking to Felix and Drusilla about righteousness... I wonder if he told them about the God of heaven who made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Righteousness is an explanation of justification, another word that we see in the scriptures that Paul uses in the book of Romans, how one is deemed not guilty. One is justified and declared righteous through believing and receiving in the completed merits of Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. And once he explains righteousness, he speaks of self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Self-control is what is needed, it seems, in Felix and Drusilla's life. They have operated to this point in the flesh, craving the lusts of the flesh seeing nothing wrong with multiple marriage partners bouncing around as they would to whomever they wish so that they might gain a particular favor, so they might gain a particular way of standard of living. Self-control is on the other end of out of control. I'm reminded here of John the Baptist who spoke clearly to Herod. You remember this? He spoke clearly to Herod about taking Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, as his own. We saw where that got John. But you see, Paul here, without having to say much about Felix and Drusilla's situation, I believe his explanation of self-control was convicting enough. Self-control is characteristic of one who is righteous, one who has obtained God's righteousness. And the final point of discussion is judgment. That's the final point of discussion on this conversation that Paul has with Felix and Drusilla. Remember that Felix had issued a continuance on Paul's case. He made a no decision on whether to set Paul free or convict him as guilty. I believe Paul, having been given the opportunity, the door was open. He was invited to come in and to speak. I believe Paul, given this opportunity to speak of the faith in Christ is as clear as he can be when he speaks about the judgment of God. There is a resurrection of the dead, both for the just and the unjust, the righteous, the unrighteous, those who have self-control in this life, those who exhibit unbridled pursuit of the flesh. 
This God who is going to judge has handed over all judgment to his son Jesus, who many of these Jews, Paul would have more than likely pointed out, many of these Jews have already rejected as Lord and Savior. When the time comes, he is going to hand down a verdict. He's not going to waver, Felix, on his decision. He's not going to waver. He's going to make a decision. He's going to judge. And here's the standard, Felix, by which he's going to judge. It's going to be a righteous standard. The righteous will be with him in heaven, and the unrighteous will be eternally separated from him in a place called hell, Felix. And Paul, just like it says in 2 Corinthians 5, I believe it's being played out right here. Paul, knowing the terror of the Lord himself. He is right now persuading men and women. Felix and Drusilla, understanding their pending judgment to come. And it's at this time when Felix, who the text says was afraid, he was trembling. Felix says, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. James Boyce in his commentary says, The real tragedy of Felix's life was not that he postponed making a judgment about Paul in regard to the Sanhedrin's accusations, but that he postponed the far more serious matter of making a decision concerning Jesus Christ. Devastating procrastination. How many people today are making the same devastating decision? Procrastinating. Putting off Jesus for some other convenient time. Felix was afraid when he heard Paul speaking about the truth of judgment. He was trembling. That's the work of the Spirit convicting him of sin. And he turned from it. He pushed it aside for another convenient time. Church, we need to understand that convenient time never came. At least it's not recorded here. Oh, we had many other talks with Paul over that two-year period of time. But they came at a point in time when Felix was calloused. See, he'd been hardened. In fact, Felix now is no longer, when he invites Paul in to have conversation with him, he's no longer listening with an ear to hear. He's now looking for an opportunity to see if Paul's going to give him money, a bribe, if you will, to get him out of prison. It seems like for Felix there was this one opportunity. He trembled in this one conversation with Paul as he spoke to him about the faith in Christ. Felix, according to the text, is relieved after two years by Portius Festus. As far as we know, Felix never came to know the Lord Jesus in a saving relationship. Oh, he heard about him, for sure. But we don't have recorded for us that he really knew. You know, as I read about the time to come, and as I see some of the picture that John saw in the book of Revelation, 
There's that great white throne judgment. Judgment in particular, as Paul spoke of judgment here in the text to Drusilla and Felix. We see that books are going to be opened. And the dead are going to be judged according to the works by the things that are written in the books. There's another book that's spoken of. The book of life. I would ask you today while you're still here, while I'm still here. What is it that's going to be written in your books? You know, as we look at the cast of characters in the text today, we see that Lysias, I think many of us would say that he did some very good things as a leader, as a commander. Good leader, for the most part. Tortullus, a polished speaker. The Jews were spiritual leaders of the day. Felix was in the position of governor. Drusilla was in the position of being governor's wife. They all might have done some good things, huh? Some of them maybe held some pretty prominent positions. Did they know the Son of God? Did they know Jesus? See, Paul is a follower of Jesus. He's walking in the way. He's pursuing this life, pleasing to the Lord, even as a prisoner. Listen, Jesus says near the end of that Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never, that word never, never at any time, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Believe and receive on the Lord Jesus. John 1.12 tells us that's what's needed. In our days here, witness to the Lord. That's the big idea picture of the book of Acts. Acts 1.8. It's also the, the mission, commission, given to us in Matthew 28. Make disciples of the nations. And then our death, thinking of our death, our death in the Lord. I was reminded of Paul in, in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is what? Gain. It's gain. What are your books going to say in that day? And when the Lord opens the book of life, is your name going to be written in it? Make it your aim, friends. Make it your aim, to be well-pleasing to the Lord with your life. Full-time devotion to the Lord for the remainder of your days. And none of us know those days. He's ordained them all. Full-time devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't push Him aside. There's some of you sitting in a chair here this morning who have pushed Him aside. 
You've not declared. You've not believed. You've not received. And you know you haven't. Felix sent Paul away after hearing the truth of the gospel. Citing a more convenient time. Listen. Now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. You do not know whether you will have another opportunity. This is not fear or guilt based either. I'm simply pointing you to what I've seen here in the text in this, in this situation with Felix in Jerusalem. They were confronted and there was fear as they heard about the judgment of Christ to come. And yet they turned away. I encourage you, friends. See that your life is well-pleasing to the Lord. And one of the foundations of a life well-pleasing to the Lord, the foundation, is a right understanding of who Jesus is. A believing and receiving this Jesus, God's Son. Not being afraid to name who we're talking about. Jesus, it's through Christ that we're saved. Make today the day of salvation, friends. Let's pray. Lord, I pray. For those here today who may not have a relationship with you through your son Jesus. And my prayer is that Lord through your convicting ministry the Holy Spirit. That Father there would be hearts changed. That there would be a desire to acknowledge and embrace this Jesus of the scriptures, to walk in the way, as Paul identified himself as being one of the way, who unashamedly upholds the truth of Jesus Christ, who in this life is going to live a life well-pleasing, spend a lifetime, a full-time devotion to pleasing the Lord. Father, I realize there are some here who already have made that declaration of faith. But Father, perhaps they've not been living that faith. And Father, I pray for them today as well. I pray, Father, your spirit would embolden them and stir them up that they might live out this faith once entrusted to the saints. This faith to which we're to hold on to, to this faith that we've been entrusted with to not only have for ourselves, but to share with others, that we might be a witness to others, and that when the time comes for us to die, we too can say like Paul, it's gain. It's gain. To live as Christ and to die is gain. We look forward to that day when we get to see Jesus That's the prize. Jesus is the prize. Being with you in heaven. Seeing things clearly. Worshiping you for all of eternity. Oh, Father, I pray that this message 
would ring true in our hearts even as we leave this place today. That we would be reminded of your truth. That we would be confronted and convicted. That we would be reminded that we need to decide and not put off. We see in Felix a no decision on the court case. But we see also more importantly, more devastatingly, a no decision on the truth of the gospel. May we not leave here today like Felix and Drusilla. Father, as you're calling us, I pray that we would be obedient to what you're calling us to. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.